Today's sermon text is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 976. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades. Good morning. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, thank you that at the end of our days, when our race is complete, we will still repeat for all of eternity that it was not us, but it was your Son, Jesus, that it was Christ in us. And now, Lord, would you help the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to lift up Jesus, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This past week, we had a, uh, a pretty interesting discussion at my dinner table one, one night. The, uh, the kids came home from school. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this as anonymous as possible, but we'll, we'll just try. Uh, they had heard about some incident at a school that we just don't cheer for that happened in town uh, or in, in the state. Um, I guess somebody had told them about it at school. They came home just incensed, mad that somebody at that school could do something like that. And before long, it had gone from like this, this person did a terrible thing to, you know, people who cheer for that team are just the worst. And Laura, being a really diehard fan, wanted to say, you know what, kids, you're right. But we, we pause, we gather ourselves, we, uh, we said, you know what, we're, we're gonna be, act like parents, we're gonna help our kids rush, not rush into lumping every person from this school into a category of what these kids were angry about. But it was just fascinating, I, just reflecting on it as thinking through this sermon and thinking through the week how my kids quickly turned from that person to those people. 
to showing us kind of the, the divisions that are just naturally created. I didn't have to train my kids to, to say that. This kind of division is not new, of course. I was taught as an elementary school to say the chant that went for that opposite school was a curse word by a lo- an uncle who loved me and thought it was really funny. Um, so I thought everybody, a lot of people around me would just be cursing all the time. Uh, there's, there's not just like division that's really long-standing. There's division that's really deep as well, much deeper than who you cheer for. You can go look at polls that talk about political division today and say that it's deeper and deepening than it has in previous uh, previous decades. But really, the text that we're looking at this morning and, and even some other things that happen here in the book of Ephesians, this is going to examine a division that goes much, much farther back than a couple of schools in Alabama. It goes a lot deeper than divides between Republicans or Democrats. We talked last week about our primary problem, okay, so the main issue that we see that we are dead. We're dead in sin and trespasses, and we have no hope apart from Christ. But God has made us alive together in Christ by grace. And so, like, this vertical problem, this problem that we have with the God of the universe because of our sin is solved because of what Christ has done in being raised from the dead. But then the, the text just kind of turns a little bit and says, what about this horizontal problem? What, what about the people, specifically the people in the church, the people in this congregation in Ephesus or in the building with us today? What, what, is, what does it have to say about this? What does the gospel have to say about that? So I, I, I know that I'm alive to God in Christ and I see this person over here who is from a different background, and we do different things. We don't belong to the same groups outside of here. What does our belonging to God say about this kind of relationship? That's what this text is talking about, and our text this morning is going to tell us the good news that through the cross, Christ has reconciled his people to God and to each other. Through the cross, Christ has reconciled his people to God and to each other. And as is our habit, just to give you the outline, if you've got a note sheet, you'll see we do this in three points. I promise they don't teach you in seminary. You've got to have three points, just kind of the way it's laid out the past several weeks. So uh, what we see today as we walk through in verses 11 through 13, we're answering the question of what. What has happened in this relationship? We'll see the truth of reconciliation. In verses 14 through 18, the question is answered, How? Okay, so this truth is is here. How did that reconciliation happen? And we'll look at the cost of reconciliation. And then verses 19 through 22, we answer the question of why does this matter? Why spend this time here and look at the consequences of being reconciled to God in Christ? And my prayer for, for us this morning, the thing that I've been praying for myself, is that as we kind of examine this reconciling work of God in Christ, we would rejoice that we would rejoice and strive for the unity of faith and the bond of peace, as Ephesians will say later. And that we will give praise and glory to God because he has paid for that unity with his very blood, with the blood of his son, Jesus. So let's begin looking at verse 11 through 13. And as you jump in there, uh, we are stepping into a place where there's a lot of historical context and things happening in the background of Ephesians. I don't want to kind of get us into quickly. Some of you may be familiar with this, but if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this 
you need to just know a little bit of background. So hopefully this is helpful to understand why we're talking about Jews and Gentiles some this morning. So in, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called by God to go leave his homeland, and God makes some pretty great, amazing promises to him. He says, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to make you a nation and a multitude of people, so a large family, I'm going to give you a land, a place to belong, and I'm, uh, this is really important, he says, through your family, my plan is to bless all the families of the earth. And the covenant sign of that promise was circumcision. So all boys, in the law of Moses, they were said when they were eight days old, they would go be circumcised as a sign that they belonged to the covenant people. And this promise that's given to Abraham, it's given again to his son Isaac, and again to his son Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. So the Old Testament, just broad strokes, the Old Testament is God dealing with Israel, with his people Israel, to bring about these promises, to make these grand promises and show how that's going to be fulfilled. And so from the eyes, uh, we may look around and we may divide the world in different ways today. Uh, It's a little bit, there's uh, ways in which we say you belong to this camp or that camp, this camp, that camp. In the eyes of Old Testament scripture of Jews in this day, there are two primary groups. Okay, There are Jews, people who belong to the covenant people of God who have this heritage, there are Gentiles, people who are outside of those promised inheritance. Okay, so now look with me at verses 11 through 12, and you'll see that once Gentiles were alienated. Once Gentiles were alienated. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so there are a couple pretty serious problems that we see here. On the one hand, there, there is really deep relational hostility. Okay, in verse 11, you see this, uh, the uncircumcision in quotations. That's likely because it was used by Jews as a, a put-down, as an insult you, uh, you can think even back to the way David uses it. Who's gonna, nobody's gonna stand up against this uncircumcised Philistine? It's, it's a, it's an, uh, uh, it's an insult. God's word doesn't necessarily encourage or sanction this, but many Jewish people had ended up despising the Gentiles. So again, this is not in the Bible, but there was a period of time where Jewish midwives were restricted and told, don't go help Gentiles have children. Because it just means more Gentiles. Uh, we've got, uh, I know Carly's here, she's getting married to Riley. They, they're getting married soon. Uh, there was a time in history where if your Jewish child was marrying a Gentile, instead of throwing a wedding party, you threw a funeral, which is pretty on the nose and leads to lots of counseling, most likely. This was, there was animosity, hostility. But, but the, the hatred, the animosity was mutual as well. So, so the, in the Roman Empire, Gentiles viewed Jews as troublemakers. They, they didn't want to worship the gods who brought us blessing and peace. They wouldn't say prayers to Caesar. Uh, they, they would, uh, the, the Jews were eventually kicked out of Rome at one point. After the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD in Jerusalem, the, the, the Jews were not allowed to rebuild the temple and actually to kind of rub salt in the wound. They were taxed in order to pay for a temple to Jupiter, a false god. 
There was a little, there was little to no relational goodwill between Jews and Gentiles. There's relational hostility. But this relational hostility is really a symptom of a religious problem. Okay, Paul tells these Gentiles they were, before Christ, cut off from the promises that were held out to Israel. Okay, we're going to try Bible trivia again. So kids, and I may need some youth help here. There are three, I'm thinking about three major covenants that are made in the Old Testament to God's people. And they have three people attached to them. Uh, raise your hand if you know maybe one of them. We already talked about one of them, uh, one of the guys this morning. Great. Abraham, great. Abraham, anybody know second covenant? Guy who was given the law. Jackson? Oh, maybe. Moses, very good. Third covenant, a king. This is a king who is David. Very good. Thank you, parents. Well done. Uh, whew, deep sigh of relief. Three major covenants that you see in the Old Testament. Okay, so there's this covenant with Abraham where God has told Abraham, I'm going to make a family. I'm making you into a family. People in, you go through the, the Gospels and you see the Pharisees. We're children of Abraham. This meant a lot to them. It was the promise given to them. God was making a family. In the covenant with Moses, God was making a people where he could dwell in their midst, in the temple. In the covenant with David, God has promised and said, I'm making, I'm bringing a king who's going to build an everlasting kingdom. We'll come back to those in a little bit, but, but these covenants of promise, they belonged to the Jewish people. And apart from these promises, verse 2 tells us that the Gentiles were Christless. So the Messiah coming from David's line, they didn't belong to him. They, they were homeless. They didn't have the hope of the Abrahamic covenant. And they were godless. They did not have the hope of God dwelling with them. They could go to temples all over the city, but God wasn't there. Israel was meant to be a beacon of hope, held out to the nations, inviting people to the God they worship. But instead of a, a river of people streaming into the Jewish nation, we find that there's a dam blocking the people out. It was a religious problem and relational hostility. And there's a visible representation of this that we see in the text, actually, and that was there in the temple in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, if you go to the temple, you have the structure itself where priests can go in and make sacrifices. Outside of that, you have a court for priests. And outside of that, you have a course of the court of Israel, which is a place where Jewish men could go and watch the sacrifices be done. Farther outside of that, there's the court of women where Jewish women could go in. But then on the very outskirts, the very last courtyard in there was the court of the Gentiles. And as you're coming from outside the temple into the court of, if you're going from the court of Gentiles to the court of women where Jewish people could go, there's this four and a half foot tall stone wall. And all along on the wall, there are signs posted. We've actually found some of those signs. And here's, here's what they say. No foreigner, no Gentile may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Okay, not exactly the welcome, Matt. Stay out or you will die and it will be your fault. That's the former state of these Gentile Christians in Ephesus. And for 95% of us, 99% of us, who would fall into that camp. That's our state apart from Christ. If this has not happened. 
But just like we saw last week, remember last week we get the bad news and then Paul just kind of interjects the good news. And here in verse 13, we see what God has done about this hostility. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles were alienated. They were enemies. But now Gentiles are brought near by the blood of Christ. So if you want a definition of reconciliation, kind of what we see, we're seeing here, of these two people, warring parties coming together, here it is, reconciliation is the removal of hostility, of enmity, of hatred. It's removing that barrier and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. That's what we're told has happened in the cross. And here at the end of verse 13, Paul touches on that, on the way in which we are reconciled, which leads to his second point, and the cost of reconciliation. The cost of reconciliation. Look with me at verses 14 through 18. For he, that is Christ, Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the father. Three things that Paul is pointing out here in relation to Christ, our reconciler. And they're all related to Christ and his peace. First, we see that Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. This may be a line that you sing every Christmas, but what did, what did God tell Israel about the Messiah in Isaiah 9-6? It's there on your notes. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then last, Prince of Peace. Instead of hostility, Jesus' kingdom, he is a king of peace. He is a peaceful, peacemaking king. And we really see this unfold in the ministry of Jesus. Think about the hostility between Jew and Gentile that we see is going on here in the first century at the time of Christ. Look at the way he relates to Jew and to Gentile. So in Matthew 15, a woman comes up and asks for healing from for her daughter. And it's a Canaanite woman. And he says at first, I came to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, yes, Lord, but, but even we, we receive the crumbs of that ministry. And he says, your faith is great. And he heals this daughter, the daughter of a Canaanite woman. In John 4, he's traveling through Samaria. He sits down at a well with a woman, which would have been unusual, and a Samaritan woman on top of that. And he tells her, if you want living water, that's found in me. Don't go away. Come closer. In Matthew chapter 8, it's a centurion, a member of the Roman army, one of the occupying forces of Jerusalem. And he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith as with this man. 
So in a world where Jew and Gentile were basically sworn enemies, Jesus demonstrates a life of peace between two hostile parties. He is the centerpiece of reconciliation. And you see just kind of the first glimpses of that in the Gospels themselves. But, but this text actually doesn't focus in on that. Uh, we don't really need just a peaceful guy. Okay, they may have been, Jews and Gentiles may be sworn enemies, but surely there were some people out there who were working to build bridges. There had to be a few of them. But we, we don't, why not that guy? Why can't he make peace? Text tells us we, we don't need someone with like just a really chill attitude, right? Coming out and say, peace to all of you guys. Just get along. It'll be fine. No, what we are told is that Jesus satisfies because he makes peace. By the blood of his cross. He's not just a character of peace, a man of peace, but he sacrifices his life, and that peace is purchased by the cross. And at the cross, both the relational hostility and the religious problem are solved. The biggest problem, the core of the problem we see here, was that alienation from God. And Paul is really clear here, that problem is not only a Gentile problem. Okay, you can look in verse 16 and Paul says here, both, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God. Hostility and separation from God is not just a Jewish problem, it is a human problem. And God has solved it in the cross of Christ. All of God's people, Jewish and Gentile, were bought not by bulls and goats, but by the blood of his son, Jesus And this gets us to maybe the confusing part, the long kind of wordy part of verse 15, where we're told Christ broke down the wall of hostility, that wall we talked about. You say that wall is gone by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, which is a mouthful. What on earth does that mean? What is he talking about here? In that that phrase, I think he's referring to the Mosaic law. Okay, so in the law given to Moses, God has told Israel how to live in such a way so that God could actually come and dwell among them. It's like, I want to live in your midst, but here's what it looks like to be clean and to be holy so that I can, without totally obliterating you, do these things and I might dwell in your presence. But now, in the light of the New Testament, Christ has come and he's lived that life perfectly. He's done what the law required. And then he died a death in our place and we're told in Galatians 3.13 that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he has now declared that the Mosaic law, the thing that that kind of relegated and and, uh, the relationship between God's people, the Jews and God, that is nullified. The way to right relationship with God is not following the Mosaic law today. So food laws and circumcision. And Sabbath, strict Sabbath observance, those are no longer the way to rightly relate to God. They, they don't form the barrier between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. Our access to God today is not through that law. If you say, I want to get to God and then I point you to Leviticus, you could say that's not the way today. No, the, the way is not through the Mosaic covenant, but through the new covenant. The covenant that Christ has made in his blood. And to be extra clear, if you go out and say, I no longer have to read Leviticus when you get to your Bible reading plan, I would tell you that's not what I said. Okay, the, the, all the Bible is God's very word. It is given to us. We see even there his character. We see our need for Jesus over and over again. 
So all the Old Covenant is our book. The, the Bible is our book, but we're told that we no longer relate to God through that covenant. We're no longer under the law of Moses, but the law of Christ. And what we see demonstrated at the cross is that God, and this maybe how this boils down, God in Christ is an equal access reconciler. An equal access reconciler. So he looks at humanity and does not distinguish on the basis of ethnicity or gender or age or status like we are prone to do. All of God's people, we're told, have access to the Father by the Spirit through the Son because of the cross. So I I love it. I want to encourage you and ask you if you want prayer. I'd love to pray for you. The elders would love to pray for you. We don't have like a direct, there's not like a red phone in my office where I pick up and go talk to God directly that you don't have. We all have that access. There's no get into heaven free card that, that Jews have. Or, or if you show up to church when you're what five or six days old, doesn't get you that you get into heaven free card. There's no VIP room, no lounge in eternity. We all stand now through the cross with equal access to God through him. And so now Jew and Gentile are united to God through Christ. That vertical relationship is made right. Equal access to God. And we find there, when that is the case, that our horizontal alienation is changed as well. As these two parties come together to God, they are brought closer to one another. Christ, it says, at the cross has killed the hostility. And so verse 11, where it says, you know, these two warring parties are calling each other names. You uncircumcised person, you circumcised person. God says, no, that is done away within the people of God. That does not matter now. What matters now is that God has circumcised their hearts. That he has given them his spirit. And that they belong now to God and to one another. So in place of two parties at war, what the cross does is create one new humanity. One new people. This is why what's, what happens in weddings sometimes I think is so beautiful. It's not just that one person is coming and joining this other family. It's that there's a new one that's being created. That's what God has done. It's not just that Gentiles now have to come into the Jewish family. If you want to get in here, you've got to shift over here. That's what we read in Galatians and other places that people were trying to say. God says, no, I've done something new. And you are all now one family. Now I want to pause here. Just dwell briefly upon the reality. Now that we've seen kind of the, the problem and the solution, I just want to look at the, the situation that happens apart from Christ. Because apart from Christ, you could characterize our words with the word of alienation, or maybe if you want a shorter word, a shorter word, hostility. Hostility. And that's true whether you are religious, or whether you are pagan, whether you're a morally upright citizen, whether you are a perverse anarchist, you were separated from your creator and you are alienated from one another and that's not a state that we want to be in we we are all looking everyone is looking to find someone or something to put at the center of their lives this is the thing around which i can unite i can center my life here and i'm going to center my life with these other people we everybody wants that but apart from christ which we've just said, he's the one who's supposed to be there. Apart from that, we're just going to grab other things and try to put it in that spot. So we'll elevate things like hobbies or, or our stage of life. 
or our political affiliation. We will look for things to put there at the center. We'll think this can hold me and it will hold me with these other people as well. And that may work. It may work for a season. But inevitably, you're going to change some. And once you start kind of elevating those things to that status in our flesh, you're going to naturally start building more walls. You're going to build more walls of separation and division from others who are not like us. And in the end, what we find ourselves is maybe we thought this was the unifying thing, but in the end, we find ourselves hostile again at hostility. Friends, have you ever felt this in your own life? Like, like no matter where I turn, I end up back there. I may have some peace for a moment, some unity for just a season, but eventually there's just distance, alienation, hostility. Maybe consider what this text says, that the distance that we feel from others is just a symptom of a greater distance that we have from our Creator. And the good news of the Bible is that God has done the work. God has done the work to draw you near to himself. You don't have to go searching for what to center this church on. He has done the work and in the cross, Christ paid for all the relational debts that we owe. He has broken down every barrier that stands between you and him. And now he is calling you through his word, turn, trust in him. And if you want to be done with separation, with alienation from God, if you want to know what it looks like to be reconciled to him and to his people, we would urge you to talk to one of us today, to trust in Christ today. I'll be down front after the service. I'd love to talk to you if you have questions about that. Find a Christian, ask them to go to lunch and just say, hey, could you tell me what it looks like to live at peace with God and be at peace with his people? That's what we want for you. And I hope ultimately that you don't hear this piece, I, I want it for you, but ultimately this piece is a call not from me, but from Christ himself, which is what we see as the third thing that Paul shows us in these verses. Christ proclaims peace. He preaches peace. So under the old covenant, God said, God, God actually wanted people to belong to him in the old covenant. But the way that it's pictured, the movement that you see happening in the Old Testament is people from the outside coming in. So you can think of Ruth and what happens when a Moabite comes in and she's brought in over the hospitality of Boaz, over the kindness of Naomi. That's the kind of movement that's pictured in the, New, in the Old Testament. So you can see a place isn't on your notes, but if you want to go look at something at length, you could see Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. Just I'll read this for you. You can listen to, to the language. And the foreigners... Gentiles who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's good. That's a great promise. Israel was lifted up as a light to the nations. To those who want to find salvation, they should come to there, come to those people. But with the coming of Christ, there's just a slight shift. This this is actually still true. We would want, we should hope that God's people are a light in the world, a city on a hill, and that people would see that and say, I want to get in on that. 
But there's also something that said we, we want people to long for that. But in the new covenant, we see that God's people follow our Savior in going out. And in proclaiming peace to the nations. To those who are near and those who are far. The mission of the church is not just come in and find this, but let's go out. Let's carry this to the ends of the earth. And this is a good question for us to ask. Are we willing to follow our Savior in proclaiming peace? In proclaiming this kind of peace? And not just to the people who are close at hand. Uh, not just to the people who live down the street. Or maybe, maybe if, if they're not close at hand, you just think close of hand like they're close to the kingdom of God. This guy is really ready to talk about this stuff. That's good. We want that. But are we ready to sacrifice and even go to the places where his name is not yet known? I, I hope that it, we, one of our prayers as a church is that God would raise up in this church body people who would want to go where his name is not known. And if he doesn't do it with us as adults, that he would do it with our kids. And he would send them to declare peace to those who are far and those who are near. But it's not just that relational kind of distance doesn't just exist way out there. Uh, there are people maybe who live on your block. You think, you know what, that, that guy is far, 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 far from the Lord. And it's, it may be easier to find a way to share the gospel with your polite coworker than your hostile neighbor. But God's offer of peace, what we see him doing and what we're called to do is to cast out a wide net. To those who are far and those who are near the sower, he walks along the path and he scatters the seed of the word indiscriminately. Peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far. We want to work with him to sow the same word, to spread that same hope, proclaiming peace that has been bought in the cross of Christ. And we should want that, brothers and sisters, because we were far off. We were separated from God, but we have been brought near. So that we now have peace with God and peace with one another. And we want to invite others into that. And Paul ends this. He's made this kind of, here's what, what peace with God looks like and peace with one another. And then he's going to dwell in these last few verses on the consequences of reconciliation. So look with me at verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul, as you read the New Testament, Paul is like a master of mixed metaphors. He kind of goes bang, 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 and you get things that are lined up together often. And here he's going to paint three quick portraits of what we are now, that we are reconciled to God and to one another. First, we are citizens of a new kingdom. We, we talked earlier about the covenant made to David. We were outside of that promised Messiah, outside of that promised king and kingdom. But here God has said that we are fellow citizens with the saints. And so as citizens of this new kingdom, we share with all other citizens a common heritage. And so the promises that you find in scripture that we're reading from Old and New Testament, this is our book. And all of them are ours. All the promises of Christ are yes and amen in him. We read these stories and you hear the stories, kids, of things happening in the Old Testament. That's our story. That's our history because of Christ. 
Beyond that, we have a common allegiance. My, uh, my grandfather fought in World War II. He was a Marine, and he frequently told me stories, probably stories he shouldn't have told, but lots of stories about his friends from those days. He, he spent, went to great efforts. Uh, even into his 70s and 80s, he would not want to travel much, but he would gladly get on a plane and fly to San Diego to see friends that he hadn't seen in a decade. And what, what brought them together, the, they, especially when they were fighting, they were, they were various ages, they were from different places, they had very different backgrounds, but the thing that held them in common as young men was an allegiance to a country they loved and a cause that they were fighting for. And I'm grateful for that. I don't want to denigrate that kind of allegiance. But brother and sister, we know that as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have a higher allegiance, an ultimate allegiance. And our ultimate and final allegiance is to no nation, no personal agenda. It is to King Jesus and his everlasting kingdom. One of the great temptations that we may face, even even within people who say we're Christians in the church, is to we, we're probably too sophisticated and smart enough not to blatantly say, uh, I don't want to swear allegiance to Jesus. But we can start to elevate some other things to be pretty close there, or maybe even equal with him. And I, let me just get really specific. One of my greatest prayers for this church Uh, It was such a joy to see 26 people join this church last week. One of my greatest prayers for this church is that it would not be a place where people who have been here for several years and people who are coming in would have different allegiances, but that we would be united in swearing loyalty to Christ as our king. And anything else that we would want to elevate to that level, we would smash down and say we want to follow him together as one new citizen. As one new kingdom. We have one final allegiance to Christ. We have a common mission. We just talked about declaring peace. And the Bible says that we're not only citizens. But we're ambassadors. We are now the people who are called to go out with this message of peace to those far and near. And we have a common destination. So today God's kingdom doesn't have a physical border there you don't go to Jerusalem and see it or the US God's borders are among God's people and there is a day coming when that is made real and when we see it when the new heavens and the new earth are established and we enjoy our citizenship in full that's why Paul says in Philippians our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ we are citizens brothers and sisters of a new kingdom Second, we are members of a new family. So we, we said we were cut off from the Davidic covenant. We're now in that we're, we're cut off from Abraham. But now we sing, our kids sing a song. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. I don't know what the right arm has to do, but it gets your wiggles out, I think, is how that goes. But we are all children of Abraham. And this, this idea of being a family brings with it a connotation of loving Relationship, loving relationship. Now, I can say that, and I know for, for every, everybody has had a family at one point, and saying that we have a loving relationship doesn't make it so. It can be hard, it can, not always easy. But this reality doesn't, and this, this reality doesn't mandate that we should be best friends with everybody who names themselves a Christian, but it should have an impact on the way that we treat one another, and it should have an impact on the amount of work that we're willing to put in and making those relationships healthy. 
So my sister is a couple of years younger than I am, and whether my sister Rachel likes it or not, we are going to be going to the same family reunions and the same birthday parties and the same holiday gatherings as long as we're both alive. And if that's the case, then I'm willing and I actually want to put in the work so that our relationship is one of mutual love and enjoyment. It's worth my time with her where maybe somebody I don't know who's not in my family, I say, I, I don't have to do that. Beyond that, for, for my sister, I'm going to be there when she hits rock bottom. We're, we, we're family, and that's what we do. That's, maybe we don't talk on the phone every day, but when things are at their worst, I'm going to say, I'm here for you. And when she's celebrating her highest highs, I want to be there and celebrate and say, I'm proud of you, and I love you so much. We're there for one another because we're family. And I hope you can see why Paul would use this metaphor for the church. In this church, we are a family. We have promised one another. These are words from your church covenant. So if you're a member here at Philadelphia Baptist, you have promised these things. We will walk together in brotherly love. We will rejoice with one another in happiness and bear one another's burdens and sorrows and tragedy and loss. I don't expect that to always be simple. But I do hope that that vision of being one new family as brothers and sisters, that it compels us to live as a loving family. And that when we recognize that maybe there's a member of the family who your relationship is not as it should be, we say, I'm willing to put in the work to actually love that person. I don't want there to be hostility this way because we are brother and sister in Christ. And I want to be there. So for, for you specifically, if you can think of someone a Christian, a, a brother or sister who, with whom you have relational hostility, I would urge you, do everything in your power to be at peace with them. Go out of your way. Work hard to make that a relationship that gives love and life. Pray to God that he would give you strength. If this is what we were meant to be in eternity, then surely we can show some of that now. Finally, God, uh, Paul tells us that we are stones in the new temple. We are stones in the new temple. So through the Mosaic Covenant that we talked about earlier, God was making a place, a people among who he could dwell. And now we're told that's still true. God dwells among his people, but it's not in a place in Jerusalem. It's in his church, among his people. And this temple of the church is founded upon the apostolic teaching that we have here in Scripture. It's why... Every week, we want to be talking about the Bible and not what we think is kind of neat or a good life tip or hack. We think this is the foundation upon which we build. And we would say that the, the most important part of that is the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. The cornerstone upon which we build. The cornerstone, if you don't know, is a, it's the place, well, it's, it's a stone in the corner. So that's what it is. But it's important. It's the first one you place because you, split, you set that and then you build along it. So if that is off kilter, then all of a sudden your, your walls may not be straight. Uh, you may not have a very structurally sound place if the cornerstone is not laid properly. And that's one reason why we think it is so important to know more and more. As we read the Bible, as we preach, we want to talk about who Christ is it's why David Burnett is going, spending lots of his time preparing and teaching through the doctrine of Jesus on Sunday mornings in core training. And if we ever find that we are out of step, that we've gotten that wrong, 
that we are, we are not worshiping the Jesus as he is in scripture, then there may be a sign out front that says Philadelphia Baptist Church, but it may, we might as well just be a social club. If we miss who Christ is and what he has done for us, no longer will we call ourselves a people of God, but just maybe a nice group of people. God's new temple, his church, is built on Jesus. And it's built on Jesus in such a way that we should be a display of God's glory today. If you remember at the very end of Exodus, the people of Israel finished building the, the tabernacle at that point, And the very last thing that happens, they build the tabernacle and God's glory comes down and fills it. It's visible. And today, God's church, his people gathered together like we are today. It is meant to be a visible display of God's glory to others. What's happening today, singing songs and praying prayers and listening to scripture be read and explained, that may feel mundane. But we're actually told that this is one of the most significant things that God is doing in the world. One of the places he wants to show his glory to the nations. The place where his presence rests. Not in this building. You can move this place to anywhere in the world. But when God's people are gathered together in his name, there he is. We are the temple of God. Friends, we, uh, this is just a very pointed application here. If, if you are here, and if you are a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. If you're, if you're not a member of a church, I just want to urge you and, and, and challenge you, maybe with this text, I want to challenge you to commit your life to God's people. Being citizens, being family, being stones in the temple of the Lord means that not just that we kind of do what we want to, but we've committed our lives to one another. And so if you're a Christian and you want God's glory to be made visible, which I think is part of what it means to be a Christian, if you want his glory known, I just encourage you, join a local church where you can carry this out, where you can make this known and visible. You can do that here. You can go to any gospel preaching church in our city. But, but, but don't just say, I'm good by myself. Please hear this and join yourself to God's people. Show to those around you. Demonstrate to yourself and to others that you have been made right with God. And made right with his people by joining a church. Friends, we naturally crave belonging. In closing, we naturally crave reconciliation, but we are sadly, naturally alienated. We naturally are hostile and create barriers. But God in his mercy has done something about it. We recognize in the cross of Christ the ultimate peace that we need. That peace with God has been purchased for his people. And then as we're brought to peace with God, miracle of miracles, that person who you thought was so different that you would never, never sit in the same room, you find that's your family, that you belong to one another. And so regardless of where you are today, hear the call of Jesus to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Without Jesus, there is no peace, no hope, no reconciliation. But with Jesus, that kind of peace with God and with others can be ours, can be yours. So ask yourself, are you at peace today? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that through the blood of Jesus, you have, by your mercy, purchased a people for yourself And even now, as we enjoy our fellowship, as we enjoy 
centering our lives around Christ, would you hold him up as the one thing, the one person to whom we are loyal together? And I pray that in this church, in Philadelphia Baptist Church, that you would make that the case, that as we grow in love of Christ and of one another, that we would be a visible demonstration of your glory to those around us. We ask all of this to the praise of your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us as we get to celebrate this together?